Welcome back to the CNS Summit podcast. I am Amir Klali, and I'm pleased to host this series where you can enjoy interviews with speakers at the CNS Summit. In this episode, I spoke with Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek has had many accolades, including being on the cover of Forbes magazine when he led the largest IPO in biotech history which was particularly remarkable as, at the time, he was also the youngest CEO in Biopharma. Vivek has also led the remarkably rapid expansion of the Royvant family of companies. I hope that during this podcast, you will get to know what drives him. Vivek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start by reviewing some of your recent accomplishments. You acquired the compound for $5 million up front, raised $360 million in eight months, and the IPO for your company was the largest ever for a biotech. Am I right so far? I think that was about right, yeah. What were you focused on during that time? At the time and all the way through the rest of the year, the thing I was most focused on was really how we were going to resuscitate the development of a drug that mm-hmm. needed to be developed. It was clear that every person on that prior team that had worked on that drug who I had spoken to was a a courageous individual up to the leader of that team of the neuroscience unit of GSK that had previously developed that drug, knew that this drug could have the potential to help patients with Alzheimer's disease, that there hadn't been a drug approved for over the last decade, and the main block had historically been for the last 10 years the reluctance of a lot of large pharma companies to get into the neurosciences space, and even the reluctance of a lot of investors outside of pharma to back projects that could represent major advances in the neuroscience area. So to me, the question was part of a broader movement of resuscitating investment in neurosciences, which unlike oncology, unlike a lot of other areas, has not seen the level of advance that we'd want to see. This could be the potential uh, turn of a tide if we could really develop a successful product that had been abandoned, but which had really been resuscitated into an approved medicine. And I'd say for those who are interested in the IPO aspect of the story, that's really uh, just a, but a detail along the way. And for those who are interested in how to have a successful I, IPO in biotech, the easiest way to do it is to build a strong company focused on good assets and great people. And in a environment today where a lot of the investors in biotech are quite sophisticated in analyzing data and analyzing the track records of teams, the success is really determined by having a quality drug in an important area of unmet need with a strong team developing it. And I was really fortunate in this particular case to have all three of those things going in our favor. I noticed that your answer focused on the unmet need rather than the IPO. That's interesting as your background is in hedge funds, right? I have worked at uh, at a hedge fund. I'm trained as an attorney. I had a molecular biology background and I've been a tech entrepreneur. So those are a few of the things I've done uh, in my career before founding the companies, Royvent Group of Companies, in 2014. So what drove you to really try and solve the unmet need in neuroscience? Because as you said, many people were um, leaving neuroscience thinking it was just too hard, you know, they weren't going to invest. So what, what made you want to sort of buck that trend? You know, it, it actually, to the extent uh, you're, it you, sounds like you're interested in my investment background, it actually came from 
my investment philosophy more generally, but applied in a more hands-on sense to resuscitating new drugs, where I believe that the right time to invest is exactly when everyone else has pivoted the other way. And if we're to bring that analogy to the neuroscience field, it's precisely when the pendulum had swung so far in the direction of disfavoring further investment in neurosciences. And we had seen such a drought of new drugs being approved that I felt it was the right time to bring a talented group of people to identify what could be the most likely success story to catalyze a pivot back in the opposite direction. And that's how we found RVT 101. So it's a drug that I think will go on to become one of the next, if not the next approved drug for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. But I hope it's part of a broader movement that catalyzes a much necessary backing of further investment in the neuroscience field more generally. And and the thing that really motivated me was exactly that challenge of pivoting in the opposite direction of where much of the industry and even much of the investment community had gone. Really, all the advances we had seen in oncology over the last uh, decade before that was, to me, a testament of exactly that testament, exactly that principle. If you look 15 years ago, immuno-oncology was a bad word in the investment community or in the large pharma community. It had fallen out of favor precisely at a time where all of that prior work that had gone in was waiting to be harvested. And we saw really a revolution even in the last five years through the development of new types of immunotherapies, the anti-PD-1 therapies, now even in CAR-T therapies, offering new promises of potential cures to cancers that were unimaginably difficult only a decade ago. I would personally like to see that same revolution unfold in the neuroscience arena. And it's, you know, to be honest, a, a little bit of a thirst for challenge that really sent me going in that direction. And, you know, I think if our early success stands for anything, let it be a harbinger of better days to come in the next 10 years ahead for what we have as an industry in store for new drugs approved for neurodegenerative conditions. And let's start with Alzheimer's disease at that. Now, many people listening to this will be inspired by what you just articulated. How do we get other investors to think this way? Or do you think that by definition, only a few mavericks will invest against the tide? I think like most movements, and I think this is a movement in the in the CNS arena and with the Royvent group of companies more generally in resuscitating yes. the drug areas that have been abandoned historically. And it's a movement to resuscitate those areas that have been forgotten. Like most areas, I think it'll take a few, as you put it, uh, mavericks to pivot in the opposite direction. But I think success will beget more success. And I think the way I measure success here is delivering approved drugs that make a real difference to patients. But I think even a couple, even one of those in an important area like Alzheimer's disease will be the catalyst that opens the spigot to an entire new revolution. As we've seen, I keep referring to oncology as kind of a model area for which we'd like to unleash a new model of innovation in neurosciences. And Mm -hmm. to me in particular, I think part of what caused me to pivot in this direction actually was having some firsthand experience, even from a young age, understanding how devastating neurodegenerative conditions could be. My mother, as as you may know, Amir, was a geriatric psychiatrist who cared for patients suffering from Alzheimer's disease, a disease that afflicted at that time people two generations ahead of me, but had a front row seat to see what that could do 
to patients and their families and now entering first the business of investing in pharmaceutical and biotech companies and now in the business of actually running them. I found it particularly ironic that that was an area, the, the one area that probably touched every single person we know in some way through a family member or a friend or a colleague and yet was perhaps the area least served by what our industry had done over the last decade that you know, I really, on a personal note, wanted to make that part of my project of what I'd contribute through through my own work and my team's work in the industry. So I, I think that's what started it. I think that those who will hopefully follow that positive trend will be driven by the success of the first few who've pivoted back in that direction. It's great to hear about your early influences, especially about your mother, who was a physician. Were there other influences in your life that have shaped your career? I think uh, I think a lot of it starts in, in my family, actually. I think in addition to having had a parent who was a physician caring for the kinds of patients who, you know, I in my work am trying to serve in a different way today. I, I was recently married. I got married last year to uh, uh, my wife, who's a surgeon and faces a very different set of challenges day to day at work, but with the end shared goal. And we're re each approaching making those patients' lives better in different ways. And I think that those continue to uh, appreciate the, the human element of what it is that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I'd say my educational background is something that I think I'm very grateful for as well. Unlike my parents and unlike even a, a lot of those uh, around me in various aspects of my life, I had a I was fortunate to have not only comfortable upbringing, but the opportunity to attend some of the best universities in the country. I'm really fortunate to have had that opportunity that pressed me even at a formative stage of my uh, youth to think about questioning conventional wisdom, to not take the status quo as given, to engage in real deliberation debate at every juncture in what we do. And I'm grateful to a lot of my education at a young age that built me up to to live those values later in life. But I think that that informs even things like we discussed earlier, going into neurosciences and questioning the conventional wisdom of pivoting away. It really is that type of contrary and attitude that I have a lot of my family upbringing and educational background. And I think a lot of the good fortune that I had growing up to thank that for. I know that you've talked about some compounds that have had their development discontinued as being an underappreciated ethical issue. Can you please expand on that? Also, what other challenges do you see in the drug development industry? Yeah, sure thing. So, look, there's certain problems in the pharmaceutical industry that are well known. These are well-discussed issues. Maybe a decade ago, a lot of discussion around Vioxx, around the Avandias, around a whole range around the FenFens, the whole range of products that perhaps there's reasonable debate about whether they should have ever reached the market and whether they were investigated to enough of an extent before they hit the market. And I'd say those problems are well trodden and I'd rather not beat that dead horse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To me, I actually look at a completely opposite problem. It's really an invisible problem, but an at least equally important ethical problem with normative stakes that are about as great as they come in our industry, which is a whole class of molecules that could make a meaningful impact for patients that have been abandoned, uh, mismanaged or deprioritized 
in the context of corporate reorganizations and even shifts in strategy that have nothing to do with science or nothing to do with those molecules themselves, which really prevent patients and the healthcare system more generally from benefiting from all of the research that had gone into them to date. And that's what I've really made my mission here is fixing that invisible problem in the pharmaceutical industry. And I should say that one of the things that I found most inspiring is the extent to which each of those scientists who had previously worked on those molecules is at least as passionate as I am about actually delivering them to patients and turning them into approved medicines. And what was really missing was a platform or a model in which those drugs could be developed in a way that maximized their chance of actually turning into approved medicines. It's not so much the fault of the companies themselves that had shelved the products. They're under pressure from their own shareholders or their stakeholder groups to focus, to maintain their cost structures, to be able to excel where they're best, while then being in a tough position about what they had done with their historical research in other areas. It's an understandable state of affairs, and it was really the responsibility, I felt, of a new entrepreneur with a new business model to make the resuscitation of those forgotten drugs along the way their core mission. And I found myself enough times frustrated with the fact that that solution didn't exist, that I, that's really what motivated me to found Royvent as a new business, founded not on laboratory-based drug discovery, but rather on the project of really resuscitating and rescuing the valuable research already conducted in the walls of other companies that we respected and wanted to partner with, but in a, in a home that really could help a lot of those molecules reach their full potential and ultimately reach the patients who stand to benefit from them. So you mentioned innovative new financial models. Can you tell us how you are innovating in that way? In fact, I've heard your company, Royvant, described as the Berkshire Hathaway of drug development. Can you explain to us what you mean by that? Sure. Well, there's a famous uh, Warren Buffett quote uh, that one should be brave where others are fearful. And the second part of the quote goes to be fearful where others are brave. Uh, I'm focused on the first limb of that for this part of the discussion, to be brave where others are fearful. And I think that that's been a lot of what's made Berkshire Hathaway successful to rescue, in their case, abandoned or disfavored assets where the fundamentals supported it, but at a time when they had been disfavored by others. And there's a deep analogy here in much more of an operating context of our ability to do that with respect to pharmaceutical assets that may be less favored, or in our case, even if not less favored, just forgotten or deprioritized by others, that it is our job to then be brave, to be driven by the science, and to be driven by the medical potential of those drugs, even at times where others may be hesitant or even fearful to do the same. So that's really the essential character that we like to learn lessons from other industries all the time. I think there's a lot of things we learned from Google, from our other colleagues in Silicon Valley who have used technology in transformative ways in affecting people's lives for the better. I think we learn a lot from the contrarian success of folks like Warren Buffett through Berkshire Hathaway. And our goal is to take those lessons of even from other industries that have been quite successful in delivering value to consumers and to really import those lessons into the pharmaceutical business to figure out how we as an industry can deliver medical value to our ultimate stakeholders, which in our case 
our patients who stand to benefit from our medicines. So I understand that Roy Vance will uh, plan to spin out sort of quite a few companies. The first one you've kind of mentioned in Alzheimer's disease with Axovant. Can you tell us what other areas you might be exploring? Sure thing. So, you know, Roy, I would say is less focused on spinning out companies per se. What we're really focused on is, is the creation of an entire group of companies, many of which will remain private and some of which may take a different course in the future. But Axivent was really the initial uh, public interfacing side of Royvent, and neurosciences was a core area of focus that we wanted to start with because that was emblematic of an important therapeutic area that had generally been disfavored over the last decade. And we felt that it was front and center in our mission to focus on exactly those types of areas and neurosciences happened to be near the top of the list. But the other areas in which we're focused are really wide ranging, spanning the whole gamut of areas where other companies, even our peers, and perhaps even other investors have been less focused in the last five to 10 years, be it ranging from rare diseases to dermatology to hepatology to other areas where we have taken an interest. It's really to focus on whatever area of drug development where there's an important opportunity to advance patient care, but which has been abandoned for reasons that have less to do with science and more to do with just the circumstances of the prior players who are focused on that area. So that's the entire point of Royvent is really to have the flexibility to resuscitate projects across a wide range of therapeutic areas. So I assume some of this will be opportunistic based on assets that you find interesting. That's right. And it's it's our goal to actually provide a solution as a as a really trusted partner of choice to help many a pharmaceutical company and their R&D group work through a problem or at least a challenge that they may face and how to focus their own business, which is certainly something they need to do while still getting a lot of value out of all of that great research that had gone into even their non-core areas. And the goal here is to develop a series of win-win partnerships between ourselves, a win for us, a win for the prior teams that had worked on their drugs that stand to see those drugs ultimately make it to patients, and most importantly, a win for patients themselves who would benefit from work that we're able to do that otherwise would have never seen the light of day had we not gotten involved. Are there other ways you think your background might give Roy Vant a competitive advantage? So look, I, I would be, um, you know, it would be arrogant of me to, as a newcomer in this industry to tell those who have been, you know, successful in this business for a very long time about why, uh, why we're uniquely successful because I, we're not uniquely successful. We, we enjoy actually a rising tide of, innovative advances across the entire industry. I'm a big believer that that rising tide will lift all boats. And, you know, we're one of them and we'll make the contributions that we're able to make. In our case, it's focused on this unique mission of helping our partners rescue the value out of research that they're unable to focus on. But I would say that one thing we do uniquely relative to some of our peers in the industry is actually drawing from talent pools far outside of pharma. And I understand actually why it is appealing to choose drug developers who have been in the business of biotech and pharma for their entirety of their career, because this is 
not a uh, this is not a simple business. It's a an industry that requires great expertise, a great understanding of the drug development process. And as a consequence of that, I think many of our peers have resorted to hiring from really that same often inadvertently inward looking talent pool. In our case, we recognize the importance of having leaders from the drug development world. At the company here, we have Bill Simmons. He developed Savaldi start to finish from Pharmacet all the way through Gilead. Larry Friedhoff did the same with Aricept, a drug you know well, I'm sure, Amir, for Alzheimer's disease, the most widely used, as well as a number of other drugs. So, so we recognize the importance of that experience and that wisdom from having developed successful drugs. But the ingredient that we add at Royvent is really to pair those types of leaders with the kind of talented, perhaps even younger and less experienced crop of graduates from the nation's top universities and graduate schools and other backgrounds that have never in a million years considered going into pharma. They may be the types of folks that either go work in Silicon Valley or get recruited to work on Wall Street, but haven't consciously thought about having an impact, a positive impact on the world through the biotech and pharmaceutical business. And what we try to give them is a home in which to let their talents contribute in a new way. And I think what we found is many of those people actually, I mean, even from places like where I've gone to school myself, you know, I was a graduate of Harvard College, Yale Law School. I can tell you many of my peers were much more inclined to go to Silicon Valley or Wall Street than they were to the pharmaceutical world. But I can tell you when we purposefully tap into those types of folks to come here, they're actually much more motivated by the possibility of positively impacting patients' lives, of positively delivering medicines that could transform the experiences of patients and their families in areas ranging from neurosciences and beyond. And I think that's really a missing ingredient that rather than keeping that as a competitive advantage, as, as you phrased it, I'm actually happy to, to share that early piece of positive experience we've had so that, you know, there are peers and other companies trying to do similar things can benefit from a similar approach, which I think would be great if more of our peers uh, really took up as part of their recruitment strategy as well. It sounds like you're a big proponent of collaboration, enabling the acceleration of new treatments for patients. Absolutely. I think collaboration is key. And I think that in the same way that Part of the problem in large-scale R&D organizations is the development of silos that prevent one therapeutic area head from benefiting from all of the great work ongoing in a fellow R&D head's silo. I think the same way the industry shouldn't risk being siloed across walls of a single company either, because what we've discovered is a lot of companies face the very same challenges of focusing their business on where they're best but often having to pivot away from promising projects that they have to let go by the wayside. And the real answer to solving that problem is not to further fortify the walls between different companies, but rather to allow the benefits of research to cross-pollinate across different organizations. And if we do one thing at Royvent, I'd love to build a company that is an emblem of that model to really partner for greater success over the long run by entering win-win arrangements, win-win partnerships that allow one company to benefit from the other's success rather than to be threatened by it. And I'll say that our partners so far have been gracious in working with us. And we've been, I think, uh, 
diligent in doing our part to help them. And hopefully this will develop a new model for a new scale of collaboration, especially on the R&D side of our business as we advance. Vivek, you have eloquently articulated what drives you and the mission of Royvant. What has been the reaction when you discuss these issues? Well, look, I talked to a lot of people, and uh, I'd say that yep. one, one set of stakeholders is those outside the pharmaceutical industry altogether. And mm-hmm. you know, I think those have ranged from political stakeholders to uh, stakeholders who are potential recruits uh, of the business that have come from tech or from other industries. And I'd say the first reaction I get is a uniformly more positive one, not just about Royvent, but about the pharmaceutical industry more generally. I think yes. that I think that it's a really a travesty of the last 10 years, certainly the uh, the poor public understanding, I would say, of the real contribution that we and our fellow companies in this space are aiming to make to advance human health. And I, I personally believe that as, as much of an advance as companies like uh, Apple and Samsung have made, I certainly believe that even the ability to to text or email from your handheld device as as transformative as that's been, I personally believe advances in human health call for even far greater needs that haven't yet been met. And that's exactly what we strive to do as an R&D oriented, medically focused industry. And I've found that it's been a shame how how little people outside of our closed circle within the biotech and pharma community understand that centrality to our mission. And so to me, that's been the most informative set of reactions is those from outside of our industry. From within our industry, look, I think that we've had great reception and really, I think, a, a gracious reception by a lot of the R&D leadership in both large and small pharma alike. And I think with an approach to solving a problem doing what's right for each drug asset and what's ultimately doing what's right for patients, I've gotten a strong sense. I've actually been inspired by how motivated many of our pharmaceutical partners are by that mission. And I think that when they see we are doing day in and day out what we do, motivated by the same thing, we've really had uh, an expanding set of relationships and really an expanding success on our horizon to help our partners and to let them uh, help them help us as well. So that's that's the model in a nutshell. We started by talking about you being the youngest chief executive in biopharma. It is, I think, frustrating for some in the industry to see the perception that the public has. What more do you think the leadership in pharma can do to help people understand our core mission? Look, I think it's the it's the great gap for the next uh five to 10 years in our industry. We have a leadership gap. I think that, you know, the tech industry has had an opportunity to gravitate around compelling, compelling individuals like Elon Musk, like Steve Jobs, who have done outstanding jobs of not only innovating, but explaining to the public and all of their stakeholders more generally, how that innovation positively impacts the lives of, in their case, their customers. And I think that's an area where we as an industry stand to do better. To say in plain English what it is that we are doing that delivers positive value to the world and to humanity more generally. And in our case, there are every one of us, every individual you know, more so than any other industry has been touched in a positive way by the pharmaceutical industry. We've all taken some pill, some capsule, some spray, some lotion that has 
positively made our life for the better and was delivered by the R&D work that we and our peers in the industry strive to do and do better day in and day out. And I think the people who do that, especially in the R&D divisions of large pharma, but really in any part of the biotech or pharma industry deserve a crop of leaders that can explain that to people outside of our four walls, people in the political community, people in other segments of the business community, and ultimately the population of the United States and the developed and developing world more generally. And I think that over the next five to 10 years, we're likely to get it. I think that we deserve a better face for our industry than we've had. And the good news is the fellow chief executives and leaders who I've talked to in especially the last year have really wake, have really awakened to that fact. And I'm confident in their ability to step up to that challenge and to meet that goal. And I'll be glad to do my small part to accomplish the same. Vivek, there are many other questions I would like to ask you, but we are running out of time. So I wanted to finish with a question about your personal life. I know that you were recently married. Congratulations. I heard you had to postpone your honeymoon to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Tell me how you approached that conversation. and How did you survive? Well, I, uh, I will say that after we had agreed on the rescheduled dates for the honeymoon and had settled on... Uh, her version of where we would go. I think it yeah. was uh, quite a happy day contingent on That's that happening. Great. So she uh, she was waiting for me to deliver in another month. And uh, about a month later, we had the hiking trip that, that she wanted to have. And we ended up having a great time. So thankfully, That's I'm fantastic. still married. Yeah. <laughs> well, Vivek, I hope the people that listen to this enjoy it as much as I have. I really do think it's inspiring and aligns with how many people in drug development feel. I'm also grateful that you took the time to share your thoughts with us. I wish you all success. Thank you, Amir. You were very gracious to have me. Thanks for joining me on the CNS Summit podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player and stay tuned for more conversations with leaders from the CNS Summit. I'd love to see you at our next summit, so visit cnssummit.org to find out more. Thank you.